0: Section One of the Roman Triumvirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. The Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. Chapter One The Reaction Against Sulla's Legislation Rise of Pompeius. Part One The Roman Republic maintained itself for a period of nearly five hundred years, and this has been commonly regarded as a striking instance of the vitality of free institutions. But such an idea can only be admitted with much abatement. The polity of the conquering city was in fact ill-fitted for duration, for it was essentially the government of the many by the few, of a commonalty by a nobility, of an unarmed multitude by an armed order of subjects in many lands by their victors in one central position it was only by the happy circumstances under which the lower classes were from time to time elevated in spite of all resistance into the ranks of the governors that this inequality was not redressed by violence and the commonwealth overthrown by revolution it was only by the occasional suppression of the free state and the creation of a temporary dictator that the balance of power was at many a critical moment maintained when the conquering race at rome had made itself master of italy and a single state held sway over a number of subject communities the time was almost come for the appointment of a permanent ruler probably the rivalry of carthage and the invasion of hannibal by drawing all classes at rome and most of her allies and dependents more closely together postponed the inevitable event after the fall of hannibal and carthage the ascendancy of the scipios first in war first in peace first in the hearts of their countrymen seemed to point more clearly to such a solution once more the wars in the east and the brilliant conquests of greece and asia diverted men's thoughts to new aspirations and the era of monarchy was not yet under the gracchi the spirit of impending monarchy again loomed visibly again the struggle of the social war averted the consummation from this time the roman constitution was proved to be impracticable it would not work the sovereign power was disputed openly between the leaders of two rival armies who barely deigned to avow themselves the heads of two domestic parties when sulla gained the ascendancy he made himself a king under the title of perpetual dictator he resigned this power indeed but he had not the less made it his own it was his singular ambition to re-establish the free state by personal caprice and open force, and to found a republican constitution upon a monarchical revolution. He failed. The fabric he set up was a mere shadow, which hardly for a moment disguised the fact that the real government of Rome must henceforth rest in the hands of her strongest citizen the history of the roman triumvirates is the history of the brief interval during which this shadow of a free state still hovered before men's eyes while the permanent establishment of imperial sovereignty was only delayed by the nearly equal forces of the chiefs who contended for it sixteen years after the death of sulla the government was virtually shared between three military rulers who formed what has been called the first triumvirate seventeen years later a similar compact was renewed and more definite powers were assumed by a second triumvirate thirteen years later the commonwealth of rome had fallen actually under the sway of a single despot who styled himself emperor the period of which the following chapters treat comprises forty-six years from the death of sulla to the crowning victory of augustus sulla could have given no greater proof of confidence in the stability of his work than by abdicating his personal power and leaving the commonwealth to be guided by the political principles he had established he believed that an oligarchy of wealth and station could govern rome and maintain the position in which he had replaced it it was sufficient in his view to launch the optimates the self-styled best or noblest of the city freely on the career which he had opened for them by suppressing the rival powers of the tribunate and making them supreme in the comitia unchecked in the administration of the provinces and commanders of the national armies he was not aware that in fact the authority which he had exercised had depended solely on his own personal ability, and that the aristocracy had no vital force of its own to make use of the high position he had regained for it. It had, indeed, no hold upon the nation, no confidence in itself. It was, at the moment, singularly deficient in men of commanding eminence. It had, in fact, survived its vital powers, and the forces which had grown up around it, both in the city and the provinces, had already passed beyond its proper control. Solo was himself a man of extraordinary genius. He had been backed by an irresistible military force, and he had encountered the popular party at a moment when it was demoralized by its own bloody excesses. But it was only under these exceptional circumstances that the aristocracy had gained a transient success it was unable to maintain its vantage ground. The abdication of Sulla may have hastened its fall, but the fall was from the first inevitable. The great dictator had relied also upon the principles of Roman polity, which he considered himself to have re-established. Sulla was not the last, nor perhaps was he the first of the Romans who imagined that he could restore the commonwealth and replace it upon a lasting foundation by arresting its natural course of development and forcing it back into the channel which had proved too narrow for it. He dreamed that the provinces, now widely extended through three continents, peopled by numerous colonies of Roman extraction, teeming with the interests of a multitude of Roman citizens engaged in every branch of art and commerce, could be held in hand by an official oligarchy of public men as in the old days when the dominions of the republic were all comprised within a circle of a few days journey from the city his thoughts reverted to the period when the plebeians of rome were really inferior in rank and power to the patricians when they were regarded and treated as of lower origin and their pretensions to equal privileges scouted with disdain he would deny them the protection of their tribunes now, when they had become substantially the ruling power of the state. And it was through the tribunes that their power was exercised. Sulla was a fanatic. He believed in his own good fortune. He believed in the fortune of Rome. He was ready to pit Rome and himself against the world. He entertained no doubt that rome restored to the political condition in which in his view she had been most prosperous and restored under his own victorious auspices was destined to control all the changes of circumstance around her and rise triumphant over every foreign or domestic enemy the notion that sulla resigned his power in petulance or in despair of establishing the reactionary policy to which he had devoted himself seems to be founded in an entire misconception of his character he was a fanatic and he abdicated in sublime complacency at the enduring success which he fully believed himself to have achieved the work effected by the great dictator did in fact lay the foundation of the long civil war and the political revolutions which followed One the definite establishment of the roman power throughout greece and macedonia and a great part of asia minor by the victories of their great military leader rendered it necessary to maintain a large standing army permanently quartered at a distance from the capital this mercenary force could only be held by one paramount commander and to this generalissimo it was necessary to entrust the appointment of every subordinate officer, the power of making war or peace along an immense frontier, the levying of contributions from a vast array of provinces and of dependent states, and to allow him to prolong his command from year to year, almost without reference to his legitimate masters in the city. The transfer of such a command from one proconsul to another, accompanied by the displacement of a horde of servants and clients the frustration of sanguine hopes the excitement of irregular ambitions was in itself a revolution and could hardly fail to lead to a civil war two the progress of events had hitherto tended toward the enfranchisement of the provinces and the assimilation of the subjects of the city to her native citizens The social war had resulted in the admission of the free population of all Italy to the civil rights of the Romans. A precedent had been set which could not fail to be followed, and which must eventually lead to the incorporation of the whole mass of provincials in one political body. The right, indeed, of voting at the elections of magistrates was still practically restricted to the citizens who resided at the centre of affairs, for there was no more sacred principle among the romans than that of confining all civil transactions to the very spot on which the auspices could be taken which was itself at the centre of the city but the roman franchise entitled its possessor to a share in the functions of general administration it was slowly and gradually that the italians and other foreign citizens obtained a footing on the ladder of civic honours but under the command of the roman proconsul and imperator they engrossed a large part of the military appointments throughout the provinces together with all the fiscal appointments the knights whether of roman or italian origin became largely interested in commerce and settled abroad in the pursuit of wealth placing their local knowledge and their capital at the service of the government in the farming of its revenues and management of its resources not only were the provincials thus placed at the mercy of the military establishment of their conquerors but all the most lucrative employments among them were seized by financial agents of the central government roman citizens fastened themselves upon every limb of the great body of the empire and sucked its blood at every pore it only remained to secure the fruits of these exclusive privileges and to invest the enjoyment of them with practical irresponsibility when the provinces complained of the oppressions under which they suffered they found indeed ready ears among the rival parties in the state every proconsul and every subordinate agent abroad had his personal enemies at home who were prepared to listen to the charges which the sufferers made against them the great object of the class of optimates was to secure to themselves the administration of justice in the city and confined the appointment of judges in cases of provincial malversation to men of the senatorial order the commons on the other hand represented for the most part by the equites or horsemen the bulk of whom ranked with the plebeians contended for a share in these offices and one of the most constant and vital contests of classes within the city for many years was whether the judicia should be confined to the senators or extended to the knights also. Sulla had excluded the lower order from any place in this important department of administration, but the provincials chafed under the ascendancy of the optimates as that from which they had hitherto suffered most sensibly. They were disposed to lend their weight to any movement in favour of the plebeian faction at home, which they regarded as more favourable to their interests as less rigid and exclusive in its ideas of government as imbued on the whole with the principles of a cosmopolitan policy and which led them to indulge at least in some indefinite hopes of future advantage to themselves the leaders of the popular party at rome had always shown themselves more inclined to favour and employ them than their rivals the popular party had itself owed its rise to more liberal principles of government and as the aristocrats exhibited under sulla's supremacy a narrower and more selfish spirit than ever so did the democrats rally round themselves all the classes at home and abroad which aspired to a fuller enjoyment of roman privileges and advantages three but under the fair service of a polity of ranks and classes there had now grown up a power almost independent of nobles and commons of romans and provincials the real control of government rested with the army in the conduct of her distant and incessant wars the republic of the scipios and the gracchi had created an instrument which had become too strong for civil restraints at the hands either of the senate or of the popular assemblies the ancient military constitution of rome had rested on the annual enlistment of all its able-bodied citizens for the defence of its frontier against enemies who lay almost beneath its walls the roman legions were a militia enrolled practically for home service only their annual campaigns lasted for a few months after which the soldier-citizen returned to his farm or his counter and received there the solicitations of candidates for the next elections the long wars of italy in which the roman people had contended against the gauls the samnites and the etruscans against hannibal and pyrrhus against the united forces of the italian nations had compelled their government to enlist its citizens for a term of years the legionary had long ceased to exercise his vote in the compass and had come to disregard his civil functions as a citizen while he looked to the profession of arms as the road to emoluments and honours as the object of his pride and interest he had already become a source of danger to the civil government when the progress of his conquests removed him to distant shores and while this distance alienated him more and more from his native land it deprived him at least of any immediate means of affronting and injuring her. As long, indeed, as the legions continued to be supplied by recruits drawn from Rome herself, or even from the Roman colonies in Italy or the neighboring provinces, the metropolis might rely with some confidence on the deep-rooted attachment of her people and on the principles of domestic obedience which the genuine citizen could not without difficulty shake off, however far removed from her however long disused to her control he still prided himself on his connection with the ruling race and still regarded himself as a being of a higher order than the italian or the provincial who served as an auxiliary in the cohorts that fought beside him this feeling of pride marius had materially weakened by destroying the distinction of classes And calling upon the proletarians from the lowest order of the state to assist in her conquests. From the time of the exhausting wars against the Cimbri and the Teutones, the Roman soldier had ceased to represent the aristocracy of Rome and to share its prejudices. He had no stake in his own country. He was a man without a country, which among the settled communities of the ancient world was regarded as something strange and portentous. And so, indeed, it was a portent of change and revolution, of violence and rapine. The Roman legionary, thus drawn from the dregs of the populace and quartered through the best years of his life in Greece and Asia, in Spain and Gaul, lived solely upon his pay, enhanced by extortion or plunder. His thirst for rapine grew upon him. He required his chiefs to indulge him with the spoil of cities and provinces and when a foreign enemy was not at hand he was tempted to turn against the subjects of the state or if need be against the state itself the regular military chest was too quickly exhausted by the ordinary expenses of the military establishment often the troops could not even be brought into the field except by the sacrifice of some helpless community against which a quarrel was picked for no other purpose but to enable the imperator to mobilize his legions. But no prey was so glittering as Italy and Rome itself, and toward their own native shores the eyes of the greedy legionaries were now too frequently directed, while their chiefs were themselves equally eager to strike at the center of government for the highest prizes which the Republic could bestow. Marius and Sulla, Cinna and Carbo, had led the forces of Rome against Rome herself, in the predatory spirit of the Cimbri and the Teutonus before, of the Goths and the Vandals some centuries afterwards. Rome, at the very height of her material power, in the full career of her foreign conquests, lay as completely at the mercy of the true barbarians of that age as when she was helpless to avert the inroads of an Alaric or an Attila, the problem which thus presented itself to the minds of patriots, how, namely, to avert the impending dissolution of their polity under the blows of their own defenders, was indeed an anxious and might well appear a hopeless one. It was to the legions only that they could trust, and the legions were notoriously devoted to their chiefs, to whom, indeed, they had sworn the military oath. Rather than to the civil administration and principles of law, in which they could take no interest the triumph of sulla had been secured by the accession to his side of pompeius strabo the commander of a large force quartered in italy these troops had transferred their obedience to a younger pompeius the son of their late leader under his auspices they had gained many victories they had put down the marian faction headed by carbo in sicily and had finally secured the ascendancy of the Senate on the shores of Africa. Sulla had evinced some jealousy of their captain, who was young in years, and as yet had not risen above the rank of eques. But when Pompeius led his victorious legions back to Italy, the people rose in the greatest enthusiasm to welcome him, and the dictator, yielding to their impetuosity, had granted him a triumph and hailed him with the title of Magnus. Young as he was, he became at once, on the abdication of Sulla, the greatest power in the Commonwealth. This he soon caused to be known and felt End of Section one